So welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. Thanks for coming. I know many of us are here because of the topic that is going to be presented today by Dr. Stuart Babbitt. We're thrilled to have him here. Um, Pleased to introduce him, and I'm going to be very brief because uh, we're really here to hear him. Uh, Stu uh, grew up in New Jersey and then went on to his education. Medical student, medical school at BU, uh, did an internal medicine residency in Rochester and was primary care chief resident there, then went to Bayview at Hopkins and did a fellowship in general medicine. Then found his way to Springfield and was at Bayview for uh, a number of years before inexplicably heading west to Kansas and becoming a Jayhawk, where he's been uh, division chief of general internal medicine and geriatrics out there for the past eight years or so. We're thrilled to have him here. Sidelight, he's also looking at my job, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, um, and hopefully we'll be able to attract him. He's been a real leader in, ac in academic general internal medicine, in, in the Society of General Internal Medicine. He's currently uh, president of the Le uh, Association of Chiefs and Leaders in General Internal Medicine, a very wonderful uh, organization within the Society of General Internal Medicine. He's an outstanding teacher. He's received awards for humanism, teaching, and volunteering, and he's one of the best Kansas City doctors. Uh, publications have addressed, really, education and publications and presentations have addressed educating learners in the current clinical setting, challenges therein, and uh, relevant to this morning, the role of the EMR in our clinical practice and how that is affecting physicians' lives and patients' <coughs> care. And without further ado, I want to get to that and hear what Stuart has to say. So please welcome Stuart Babbitt. Good morning. Uh, I can do this. This is this from there. Okay, can you hear me all? So um, a beautiful day. This is also pre-Prouty. I didn't know what the Prouty was, and now I do. So thank you all for being here and being, you're being part of that tomorrow. It's not for a fantastic cause. So electronic medical records, physician stress, and the journey toward balance. I am a division director, a division of 60. And I think when I think about EMRs, people, it's like popcorn. You say EMR, and then you get all these stories, right? So there's a lot of emotion on the table. We'll talk about that and what to do about it. Um, and I have some observations. I have some answers. I have a lot of questions. I think part of the, the takeaway take is that how we do this and how we do it together is very important to figure out our next steps. <coughs> So my goals are to review um, a study uh, done by a, a group, the Minimizing Errors, Maximizing Outcomes a study group. Uh, and that is going to be the basis of the work that I've led um, in EMR and physician stress. So we'll talk about the base study, then the secondary analysis, and then what we found after that. Um, to look at clinical and organizational levels at which to address these findings, um, and then to present some approaches. We're epic. So it doesn't have to be epic. I'm in Kansas City. It's a Cerner town. Uh, so choosing epic was a rather interesting uh, endeavor. Uh, so just to say a couple things about this slide. This is our, our, our page. 
The first is that we name uh, our, our EMR. Yours is also named. Ours is O2, or optimal outcome. So if I slip into O2 for a moment, that's what I did, oxygen. Um, it's also important here to note that the philosophy of the record is one patient, one record, one goal. And computerized physician order entry is part of that. So the notion of how you roll out the EMR and what's expected is, is important. This is, this is the, the place in which, in which I live electronically. You all have reactions to the EMR. So let's just get the emotion on the table. I don't want you to say these out loud, okay? <laughs> so that wonderful EMR, that darned EMR, there's a lot of emotion, okay? So I want to make sure, first of all, I say that there is emotion. We've got to address it. And we also have to move with that, not move on and, and negate it. But there's a lot of emotion. So when I think of the EMR, I think of um, there's positive, negative, and there's neutral to that. So knowing the emotion. It may even be uh, sort of a Kubler-Ross phenomenon, right? <laughs> and this may actually rapid, rapid cycling, right? To, because you, you know, get a new, a new function. But there are stages of this, right? And we do actually come through denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And I really want to remember the concept of resilience with this, because if we're thinking about taking care of our patient and taking care of ourselves, yes, there's this. There's also the resilience piece and how do we move with that um, to, uh, to a different place. Again, I think that the EMR is probably down, down here. Some people even put down here want a pedestal, which is Wi-Fi, and making sure you're connected, right? <laughs> I've seen that in a presentation. Um, but really, we, we'd love to get up here, right? This is high quality. This is high care. This is scholarship and so forth. But we're living here on how do we make sure we can keep all those um, mindful of all those as we go through. So Maslow's hierarchy, EMR holds promise, absolutely. But the work of patient care is our core professional effort, as well as teaching and modeling that care. And the EMR is integral. So it's important to acknowledge the stress, especially when it's part of our psychological and safety levels. Um, but the promise of care, quality, education, and really for, um, in my world, general school medicine, for all of us, um, other students here, and residents, fellows, faculty, the scholarship piece of that and moving forward is really important. Rand Corporation, um, Rand Medicine, put out a report late in 2013, of which I will take a little bit for the EMR part of that. Um, so they put out a report sponsored by the AMA called Factors Affecting Physician Professional Satisfaction and Their Implications for Patient Care, Health Systems, and Health Policy. And I have a couple of holdback slides if you want to look at more of the, of the findings of this report. The one I want to talk about is the EMR. So in one of the chapters of this report, which just came out, uh, they looked at EMRs and improved professional satisfaction. Okay, This is the positive side. Facilitates better access to patient data. I could agree with that. Improves some aspects of quality of care, such as finding old data and trending data. Uh, it's fantastic. Better communication with patients and between providers. And overall, physicians expressed optimism about EMRs and concept. But there were worse than professional satisfaction. Right. Time-consuming data entry, uh, user interfaces that do not match the clinical workflow, interference with face-to-face -face care, like the doctor-patient computer relationship, and maybe how that's um, affected, inefficient health information exchange, information overload, uh, and a mismatch between meaningful use criteria and clinical practice. Respondents also noted that there was threatening to practice finances. Uh, any, any practice could have this, but certainly a small practice putting in an EMR, it may actually be financially um, very threatening to the practice. 
and it requires physicians to perform lower skilled work. And templated notes sometimes degraded the quality of a clinical documentation. So this is what respondents said in that report. So the design, implementation, and use of EMR in clinical practice has resulted in fundamental changes in the processes of care. So it's about the EMR, but EMR is also forced process change. And addressing EMR issues, including stress and satisfaction, must also address the workplace and the greater organization in which that workplace sits. So looking at our organization. <laughs> we know this, right? So EMR, but it's here today. Um, clinical practice, efficiency, and documentation is here. Quality programs, this can be very beneficial. Uh, PCMH is patient-centered medical home, and certainly for internal medicine, pediatrics, and family medicine as well as subspecialty-related care. The patient-centered specialty practices is another uh, rubric and designation. Accountable care organizations and development of clinical integration, meaningful use in the Affordable Care Act, and the financial drivers and goals to improve quality and reduce costs. So all these are here. They're part of our world, and the EMR is part of that. So um, I'm speaking mostly from an ambulatory platform for the studies I'll be talking about, but I've uh, practiced in the hospital for a long time. Um, uh, most recently, I'm not, but I, I was. So this is not, this is, if you're a subspecialist, you practice on both platforms. If you're a hospitalist, you practice you know, mostly in the uh, hospital setting. But a lot of EMR is really, um, it's really cross-platform. Cross so the, the paper I want to talk about, which is the base paper from which we did our secondary analysis, is called Working Conditions in Primary Care, Physician Reactions, and Care Quality. It's from 2009. Mark Linzer is the, uh, is the first author. Uh, uh, and this is the memo study group. So this is the uh, minimizing errors, maximizing outcomes. There are three hypotheses to this study. The first is that adverse work conditions, such as heavy workflow, unfavorable job characteristics, and unfavorable organizational culture are associated with adverse physician reactions, including dissatisfaction, stress, burnout, and intensity of the practice. So adverse work conditions. That those work conditions are associated with poor patient care and lower quality and more errors. And that the adverse physician reactions to that, so dissatisfaction, stress, burnout, and intent to leave, are associated with poor patient care, including lower quality and more errors. And this is the model of that. So you have on the left here uh, the work conditions that can lead to patient care um, change, physician reactions, and then can those physician reactions actually affect patient from the memo study. So there are 119 clinics who were involved in this. 45% uh, were primary care, 50% were multi-specialty, 25% had an uh, academic affiliation, five regions of the Northeast and Midwest, a range of payers including uninsured patients. And, more, and in order to get, in the, get into this study, more than 50% of the physicians in that practice um, had to agree to participate. There were 422 uh, physicians split between general internists and family physicians. Mean age of those clinicians was 42. Women were 44% of the, of the uh, respondents. 77% white, 12% Asian, 6% African American. And, they, and in order to be in the study, you had to, to be in practice more than four sessions a week. 1,795 patients took part in the study. Eight patients per physician were paired together, where, where the physicians uh, recruited eight, up to eight, uh, eight patients. They studied hypertension, diabetes, and heart failure to look at the effect of those conditions um, uh, on, on the, the workflow uh, and the physician stress. Two or more visits in the last year. And they need, those patient need, need, patients needed to be able to read either English 
Chinese or Spanish, those are the, those are the populations that those practices served, in order to uh, be able to participate in the study. 57% of the patients were women, mean age of 60. Uh, the race, 62% were white, 22% were African American. And it covered a range of insurances across those five regions and those practices. Of the patient complexity, 87% had hypertension, half had diabetes, one-fifth had heart failure, a uh, third had more than one condition. The mean diagnoses per patient were six, mean uh, current meds was approximately six. This is interesting to me. They, they, um, 78% always took their medicines. I thought, that's really good. <laughs> Just like your practice, I'm sure. Um, and, and health literacy, 71% said they had a moderate or high health literacy. So um, as, as rated, and there's a, a literacy tool. So they got data from, from um, the patient survey for health literacy and medication adherence. From a clinic, man clinic manager survey for the payer mix and office structure. And we're going to use this clinical clinic manager survey in the secondary analysis, so I'll talk more about that. A physician survey for demographics and work conditions and physicians' reactions. And then a chart audit of care to see if that care, how the care was and if it changed based on work conditions or physicians' reactions to those work conditions. So for work conditions, they looked at time pressure for new and return patients. And so let me describe this because we're going to use this. So if you imagine that you have a 20-40 template, right? 24 return of 40 for a new, and you needed 30 minutes, but you had 20 minutes to do that, then 30 over 20 would be the time measure. If you had 20 and needed 20 and you used 20, that's one, right? So the time pressure, it doesn't matter what your template is. It's do you feel more time pressure than you have um, time for the care for that patient? There was a single question about office pace. If it was calm to chaotic, and then there was uh, 14 um, job characteristics uh, were designed from a physician work life study, which was prior work that this group has done. The organizational uh, culture issues uh, uh, emphasized, uh, looked at practice emphasis on quality, information and communication, trust, cohesiveness, and the alignment of values between the physicians and their leaders. Physicians had a job stress scale, a burnout question, the likelihood to leave the practice in two years, and a global job satisfaction measure. So for patient care, what this group did is they said, well, let's determine the quality of care and errors in management for patients with those three conditions. It turns out that um, CHF dropped off, dropped off in, the, in the analysis, but, so, but we'll talk about uh, the hypertension and diabetes. They looked at blood pressure levels, A1C, stability of signs and symptoms of heart failure, created a quality score and an error score. The treatment errors were missed treatment opportunities and inattention to behavioral factors and guideline non-adherence. Those are treatment errors. Prevention errors were a lack of tobacco use documentation, prevention of missed, uh, missed prevention activities such as mammogram, cervical cancer screening, colon cancer screening, and depression. Associations between work conditions and physician stress uh, uh, were analyzed as well as associations of work conditions, physician reactions, and patient care. Does the physician's reaction affect their patients? Here are the results. So for time pressure for a physical, 53% of the respondents said that they needed more than the time allotted. And 30% said they needed more than 
they need 50% more than the time allotted. So feeling a lot of time pressure, and this may or may not resonate with you, but you, you need more time than you have to do a physical. And the same thing for a follow-up visit, right? So more time needed than allotted. Um, people feeling that they have that time pressure. 50% more time uh, a quarter. On a scale of one to five, half of the people said that their work pace was four or more. So it was a chaotic work environment. Physician, physician's perceptions of workplace. So this is now those respondents. So, so recognize now we're in 2014. This is 2001 to 2005 data, ultimately um, being published in 2009. So we're a decade more ago. Um, but high, these physicians said, who had, how many people responded that they had a high organizational emphasis on quality? That was a quarter. So these are workplace characteristics that may affect the physician. <laughs> a high organizational emphasis on information and communication. 28%. High trust in the organization, 30%. High workplace cohesiveness, 34%. High alignment of leadership and physician values, 14%. So a lot of work that is not EMR related per se, but the point here is it's about the workplace and the environment uh, as well. So job satisfaction, 65% were above neutral, 45% were high. So I'm satisfied. Um, but job stress, they also did say that they were stressed. Um, above neutral was 40%, and high stress was 25%. With a quarter saying they were burned out, and so a quarter saying definitely burned out, um, definitely burning out, 6% burned out, and one third of those um, physicians were likely to leave the practice in two years. So this is this is a practice that practices under stress. So what about the associations, right? So the time pressure during the physical exam and the follow-up appointments were strongly correlated with dissatisfaction, stress, burnout, and intent to leave. I don't have the time to take care of my patient the way I think they need to be cared for. And the work pace was also strongly associated with that. Work conditions and the physician reaction. Improved perceptions of work control were strongly associated with reductions in those scores. So those respondents who said there was high satisfaction or high correlation, there was a reduction in those stress scores. And the higher scores on organizational culture scales, particularly quality emphasis, trust and, trust and values alignment were associated with more favorable physician reactions. Okay. But importantly, the physician is buffered. The physician did not have, the patient's care did not change, even though those physicians were stressed. So the time pressure, um, time pressure during the physical exam showed a modest association with lower quality only, but, um, but the time pressure to follow up did not. So a little bit, but not a lot. And work, controls, work control was modestly associated with higher quality in diabetic care, but not the other areas. So a little bit of, benefit, a little bit of association for the positive, but none for the negative. The strongest associations were in organizational culture, higher quality care in clinics where physicians reported higher alignment values, and fewer total prevent, um, prevention of diabetes errors in the group that, had, that um, felt the strongest association in organizational culture. So the environment makes a big difference. No association between physician reactions and patient's care. The physician is buffered, right? That is like ultimate professionalism, right? So some evidence um, for uh, some report adverse work conditions. The adverse work conditions associated with, are associated with negative reactions from physicians, but physicians' reactions were not associated with quality in patient care. So from this study, we did a secondary analysis. And this is electronic medical records and physician stress in primary care, the results from the memo study. So we asked the question, 
how much EMR um, uh, functions does it make a difference to have a certain number of EMR functions in your practice, right? And does that relate to the stress? Because we didn't we didn't do this first analysis on EMR specifically. So um, in the in the uh, um, practice manager survey, the practice managers were asked which of the following so this 15 uh, 15 EMR functions do you have in your practice? <clears throat> and here they are. So I believe that your EPIC and our EPIC have most of these now. So this, okay, so displaying labs, displaying patient notes, displaying radiographic reports, prevention reminders, warnings about drug interactions or drug-drug interactions, <clears throat> obtaining treatment alternatives, writing prescriptions, exchanging data with other physicians, communicating with patients by email. You guys, if my chart and all. Um, uh, consult notes and other services, medication list, problem list, test ordering, and image ordering. My sense is you have most of these. We, we do too. We're, in, we're in spring 10. Which, which version are you in? Spring 10? Okay. Um, so the secondary analysis of MEMO, uh, we use the EMR domains and those same physician ratings for stress, burnout, satisfaction, and intent to leave. Let me go over this figure with you. So we asked, it turns out that we were able to divide the, the group into three, um, to three to divide the, uh, the uh, analysis into three groups. So the lowest group here has a low number of functions. These are all the functions along the bottom, all on x-axis. These are, this is the low number of functions, or prevalence of those functions in those practices. The second group has this, this spike here, and it's going to call it the moderate function group. And this group here is the highest group. So they have the highest number of functions um, in their practices. So with using those three groups, low, medium, and high, we found these four findings. So let me orient you. These are, this is uh, stress, burnout, satisfaction, intent to leave, high function, moderate function, and low function, okay, so in, the, in those groups. So for, for stress, in the, the, the respondents who responded about stress had a lower, had less stress here than in the moderate group, and that was statistically significant. So the moderate, the folks who had the moderate number of EMR functions had higher stress than did the low group, but it didn't return, the, the rating didn't return down um, when you got to the high group. For satisfaction, the low People who had the lowest number of functions were more satisfied than those in the moderate or high function group. Burnout wasn't significant, and intent to leave wasn't significant. The other, um, let me just go over this for a second. So the other, so we felt here that this may relate to either a practice in transition or to a practice that didn't have full functions. So you could see some things but not do. You could use some communication, but you had to. Still scanning and stuff on paper. So this, we felt this was either uh, was one of those two things. For the satisfaction piece, we saw that the, that both of these were lower and they didn't change. So we were at, we. This is the why part of why um, why would the high group have that? And we we felt this may be related to the fact that there's a higher number of functions. There's more to do in an EMR that has more functionality. Right? Um, if I mentioned the word in basket. For me. So okay. Um, so that wasn't a bad word. Um, 
But this is important. So the time pressure measure, right, that's the amount of time you need versus the time you have, was only significant in the high EMR group. That is to say that, we, and we felt this was because you had more to do, and the time pressure went up when you have to do um, in, in any given patient or in any given session, you have to, there was more, more um, things to do. So it was only in the high, pressure, in the high, um, the high, the high EMR function group. There was a tendency across all three clusters now for physicians to be more satisfied and less burned out and more likely to stay in their practice if they reported these, these findings, which were the same findings that were found, obviously, in the base study um, for more work control, greater practice emphasis on quality, emphasis, higher practice emphasis on information and communication, more trust in the organization, greater workplace cohesiveness, and more values alignment with leadership. So important things to think about also is to sort of develop our clinical systems keep our eye on this piece as well as the EMR functioning itself. So physicians in the moderate group had the highest reported stress and either practice in transition or not full functioning. And in the high functioning group had the more time pressure. So we felt that was more to do. And that just begets the next question of how do we manage that um, and maybe and change how, how we're practicing in the office. And I would just say as a pause, I, this may happen in, in, the, you know, in the hospital too, I think. Um, you know, how we round in the hospital and what functions we have to do in the hospital and then getting back and putting orders in and so forth. There's a lot to do in, in that setting too and I want to make sure we, this is a broader discussion um, as well. So where, how do, we, how, do we, how do we deal with this, right? So levels of, of a clinical care organization. I divided them up into, into ways I could try and look at the literature and see where there were some answers or some ideas. So first of all, at the bedside, what are you going to do at 9.15 today when you're seeing your patient? What, what can I do differently um, in my office or in my clinical practice? What can the clinic do, whether you're on a rounding team, whether you have a, 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 a team in the office or what have you, how can I work as a team? What about the practice organization and engaging in clinical practice development? What can the academy do, um, uh, organizing your clinical practice improvement and quality improvement can count twice as scholarship? So I'm a fan of make it count twice. I'm a fan of seeing whether you know, the scholarship that we can do is actually clinically based. There's tons of scholarship, right? But as a clinician educator in particular, make it count twice for the quality program I'm doing, for the residents and students and fellows I'm working with, but be intentional about that. And also be talking to the academy about how to make that count in the promotion and tenure and recognition process. And then policy. So supporting advocacy at local, regional, and national levels, which sort of seems very big from, you know, from where we might be, but there's a lot going on nationally. So it's not clear which functions at the bedside make a difference, right? Which are most contributory, contributory towards stress. Um, when I said in basket, I sort of put it out there, but I also meant it. I think a lot of people I've talked to have said that, that the constancy of that is something that's really important. It's not just the EMR, because in basket begets a set of functions, but it's but absolutely that's true. It may not be any one function. Um, do you have computerized physician order entry or computerized order entry? Who is supposed to put in the orders? The physicians are. Do, uh, do nurses put in orders? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so I mean, so I mean, but but for you. And we sign. And you sign, right? So so there's. Mostly we put them in. Mostly we put them in. I mean, it's at our place. It's all. It's. I mean, we have a, we have a few scribes. We have a few. Um, mostly no no scribes. Um, we have some nurse, nurse physician. Um, uh, Dermatology has scribes. 
Dermatology has scribed. Okay. <laughs> Shall I not go there anymore? Actually, uh, uh, okay. their satisfaction is not great because of that. They're expected to see patients that are really great. Oh, so a, a scribe begets a faster rate, yeah. So maybe it's not good to have scribes. All right, all right. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> all right. Um, so the doctor-patient computer relationship. Um, just help me out. Are you guys, uh, is it a tablet or wall mount or how, what's the room? Laptops. Laptops. Mm -hmm. So I call this a doctor-patient computer relationship. We are actually, we're, our, uh, right? Our, we're, we're on a wall, we're on, we're, our, our, our computers are wall mounted. So we have to sort of position ourselves with the patient and the computer um, in some way. And you guys are laptops, so you're bringing that in or choosing not to bring it in to the room, right? However, or some variation of that. So um, uh, in the reading that I did, um, I think it's pretty clear that patient satisfaction was related to more face time. More face-to-face -face time, more interaction time, less screen time, less writing time. Um, and so the notion would be, uh, as one of the next things, how do you bring that computer in the room or not to do the work that you do? Um, and so office design and room architecture are key components. So for us, it's actually been trying to redesign the rooms or work with the rooms or move the furniture, right, to, in order to address that. Um, but this is something, uh, so, so do you have, let me ask a question to that. Do you guys have ways that, you, that you've been effective in the doctor-patient computer relationship? Is there, a, is there a wisdom and answer in the room on that? I'm going to pause and ask the question. There's a lot of shared wisdom here. Sir? Sometimes I have a little computer deprecated humor at the start of the visit, and then that breaks the ice. OK. A couple other, sir? Try to share results, but I'm looking at it with the patient by turning the laptop and have them look on the screen if they don't need glasses or vision. <laughs> I love doing trending, like a EGFR or something. Yeah. Like, this is really cool, you know, you can, so you can sort of partner with them in the in the data. Yeah. X-rays. Show them X-rays. Absolutely. Yeah. How about our resident group? I know you're here. <laughs> and glad you're here. You are a computer. Yeah. On the inclusion side, they just not even taking the laptop into the room, just remembering the key points and putting the laptop on the desk and just feeling the salient points on the uh, you got the room. Do you have those computers on wheels? Yeah. Two. Do you ever bring a computer? Do we, we show patients the data in the room too. You bring it in sometimes and show them. If there's like a if there's a key point I want to elaborate on, yeah. But you should just take pen paper, write a couple points that they said. Otherwise, it's just patient, doctor patient. It's a doctor patient computer. Yeah, it's a, so get the computer. It's there. I acknowledge that it's here. But I'm not. We're just talking to the patient. Yeah. And I think that the key difference in the clinic is that I found in resident clinic, I don't necessarily have time to document outside of the room. So I really have to utilize the computer and try to engage the patient in use with me and use it as a tool and help them to perceive it as a tool. Like everyone's been saying, show them labs, show them old notes, show them whatever, talk through what I'm typing. So that they're, they're sort of hearing a closed loop communication and utilizing it as a tool to make it work. I'll sometimes type my after visit summary with them or parts of it. Um, in the, in the, like I said, this is, I'm telling you this now, this is what we're doing. Yeah, sorry. Deliberately putting the computer aside when discussing impact uh, of emotional issues, of prognosis issues, things that have major outcome issues for the patient. 
a conscious process of pushing the computer aside and making contact with the patient. Absolutely. So this is, the, this is so important that we're just going to. <coughs> All right. Those are great thoughts. So the and I think I and patient satisfaction. The patients will like that more, particularly for the serious conversations where you want to make sure focus. So um, another piece of this uh, that I've found is so we're we're now entering um, as you are value based payment and we're looking at, uh, at compensation as it relates to quality and outcomes. And one of the things I, I've seen that I, I don't have an answer for you necessarily is that if I know we're being watched on diabetes hypertension, which we are, BMI, right, smoking cessation, to make sure that the data I put into the record, whether it's in the room or out of the room, is findable as a discrete element because of the things I'm going to be measured on, right? I don't want the tail to wag the dog, but I also know that, that when I'm in the room, and I know hypertension, I've got to put a goal in or what have you, um, I know that, that what's coming down the pike, or what's already here, is watching our quality of care based on discrete data elements. And one of the things that can be hard is to not have those elements in a way that you can find them easily. So it looks like you're not taking care of something, right? Because um, there's a denominator of patients with um, hypertension, but your numerator for control isn't just good. Um, so I just, I, I'm aware of that. I don't have all the answers for that, but being deliberate about that part of it I think is going to be helpful for the downstream of how we're looked at on our, um, our outcome measures. All right, so the M squared study is the next study that's being done by the group that includes Mark Linzer. Um, Phil Croft is the PI, and he's at University of New Mexico. And it's called Minimi Minimizing Stress, Maximizing Success Using uh, Health Information and Communication Technologies. And what they're going to do, uh, this has just been funded, um, is to identify points of stress uh, on, for practitioners associated with use of advanced health information clinical uh, technologies. Coping strategies, so what's the stress? What's the coping strategies of practitioners? Okay. And then to do some look at associations between the stress on practitioners and use of information and coping strategies. So how are people, what are people, are people stressed? How, um, how are they doing and then how are they managing? So that's a study that's just getting started now. <clears throat> Potential pitfalls. So um, Dr. Bernat, am I saying that correctly? Um, wrote an article in Neurology in 2013 from uh, Herdara. Um, and the other piece of this when you're at the bedside is watching for the pitfalls. So it's, these are, some of these are, are, are um, very clear just to, to note that. So copying and pasting data, your own or somebody else's, and copy forward. Um, doesn't matter, outpatient, inpatient, consult, primary, doesn't matter, so, so copy. Um, authorship ambiguities, who actually wrote that? Um, the inadvertent inclusion of unobtained data in templated notes. So if you do a, you do your macro or you do, you know, you're pulling stuff in, you didn't look at it, but it was actually pulled in. Misleading history of physical examinations, who's actually writing that? Um, in, in our world, our medical students so, um, can, now can write notes, but they actually fall away. Right after time, so so, we, so uh, you can't use some of the medical student note for billing purposes. So how do you do that? And then how do you train our medical students to become our physicians when you don't have a lot of work in the record? Right. Um, failure to review pre-populated notes, um, inadequate discharge summaries, <coughs> uh, and transformation of the purpose of the medical record to billing <coughs> documentation. This is what uh, he talked about. So just be careful. Be careful of these things. is also important. So in the clinical space, um, you guys are patient-centered at home. Um, we are too. We also are, we're also patient-centered specialty practice. 
um, in the inpatient wards would be the same thing. How is the how is the office structured? Um, I know here at work here at Darvin's been a lot of work done on clinical microsystems. Um, other people use Lean uh, as a, a, a framework. Um, but defining teams, roles of team members, and expanding the roles of those duties, um, and innovating around process change. When I, as I put this talk together, I thought I asked other uh, my colleagues, well, okay, so how are we really going to move forward? And one person who's um, who uh, is in practice development said, we need to change the team. We need to keep looking at the team structure, right? This is working on top of your license, but it's also looking at who's on the team and what is each of the, each of those team members doing. So the cost may come and the benefits may come and actually who's on the team and how they're working. Um, so that's in the clinical space. And again, I have no specific answers today um, uh, necessarily, but there's a couple things we're going to talk about and the joy in practice, which is the next segment. So in search of joy in practice. So uh, this is done by Christine Sinsky, and she uh, is in Dubuque, Iowa, and uh, practice in Dubuque, Iowa. And this is the, the, the she and her co-authors uh, looked at 23 high-functioning clinical practices. And these are some of the things that they found that could be answers for you. And you may already be doing some of them, too. So um, I'm going to go through this. This is this is the, the table. And I'm going to go through each of these this, um, just to say there's this is a good paper. It has a good table in it. I'm going to go over each of these with you now. So she talked about pre-visit planning um, before the day huddles. Do you guys do huddles? On the outpatient side, kind of, sort of. Inpatient side, you have team huddles? You have daily huddles? You have inpatient huddles? Daily huddles? No? Okay. Um, so, it's, um, so a huddle is really a way to get together with your team and think about the day or to, or to process the day. Um, and and uh, the, the notion would be that you go over those patients. You say, I know this person's coming in, and they've got um, this disorder. I haven't had this, this um, significant conversation, or this is, uh, is going to take me 40 minutes. I might need to block out that other appointment. I know I'm going to be able to you know, build level five for the one that I'm doing. Um, and then pre-visit lab testing. Um, many of you will be able to do a, a pre-visit lab testing so people come in with their lipids and whatnot before. Um, we also use the, use the FYI, FYI function and flags. So we'll also, um, these are things that uh, I thought of as well. We'll try and plan for extended visits with flags to scheduling. So if I know that my patient's going to take 40 minutes, I'll flag that and make sure it's a 40-minute visit. So I don't have that time pressure piece when I start, right? Which is, oh, I know I cannot do this in 20 minutes, right? Um, and then, and then we also are trying to look at those patients who have um, very high uh, clinical needs, and make sure that we take care of them, covering our nurse call them, um, and making sure that we are checking in on those on those uh, people uh, weekly at least. So this is actually what we use. So my nurse's name is Trisha. So. Um, uh, we have a great team, and what, I just want to show you what we do uh, in the office. I, some of this could also be referable to the hospital as you think about, you know, your ward team and um, where you are. We do. We have a time in and time out, so I know what time I'm going in and out of the room. So if I'm okay or I'm behind, I keep myself on track. Um, we have the patient uh, patient's data here. I look for FYI flags, and because not only is meaning is it meaningful use to have my chart, but I can push more stuff out with my chart. We try and make sure that we know that people are in my chart or not. Um, we have a visit reason, uh, and then here we use um, we use our um, our main quality measures to make sure that we're up to date. So she actually looks for me to make sure that this that uh, that if um, if my data is up if the data is up to date or if not, we have a standing order to order it. 
Um, the second part of this form is uh, blood pressure, and we're looking, we look at hypertension and smoking, uh, high-risk behaviors, um, vaccinations, uh, and um, uh, any uh, recent uh, screenings. So by the time I go in the room, I have this populated. She enjoys it as a, she's an RN. Um, now we use RNs, LPNs, and MAs, um, but mostly RNs and LPNs. So she enjoys it because she learns the patient. So I asked her, do you still want to do this? She says, yes, I do. Uh, this is helpful for her, helpful for me. She also tees up all the medicines so we're set to go, and I just do the, and so she puts them in, I, I, uh, I order them. So we do a pre-visit form. Do you guys do a pre-visit form? Mm -hmm. So a pre-visit form is one way to um, sort of have, to learn the patients uh, and to uh, facilitate the care. Krasinski talks about supporting care and sharing the care, so expanded nurse or rooming protocols, that was an example. Standing orders, we have about, you know, uh, we have a lot of standing orders for med orders and also uh, acute things, acute things in the office, I, get, I suspect you do too. Um, expanded responsibility for health coaching, care coordination, and integrated behavioral health to the, um, integrated behavioral health to non-physician members of the team. So we're getting there, but we're not there yet. We have a nutritionist in our office, but we don't have a clinical pharmacist. We do have a social worker. We do not have an embedded psychologist. So there's different ways that you would you could um, uh, make up your team. Ways that the 23 high-functioning practices found joy in practice included having scribing, dermatology, but um, <laughs> um, assistant order entry, somebody else putting in the orders, um, and standardized prescription renewals. Other things that I've seen, but no, wasn't in this paper, was voice-activated dictation. Do you guys do Dragon Speak or um, voice-activated? Some. Mm -hmm. um, or dictation by transcriptionist. We could, you know, you, you uh, dictate in um, within within Epic, or smart tools. So um, we're using various smart tools. Um, clearly, technology is being pushed more out to the physician. So in basket management, what she talked about was the nurse filtering the basket first, um, and taking out and addressing things that. Did, that could be done at an LPN or RN level that didn't need to hit the physician as a notion. Um, and then uh, working to add patients to the patient's portal, this is my, my addition to that. So we have to do, you know, my chart, it's a, it's a metric, but if I can push stuff out and do the e-communication, that actually saves on the letter or the call by the nurse to the patient. Um, we looked at colo they looked at co-location, huddles, and regular team meetings. That's this, these things would get to the workplace that Dr. Linzer and colleagues have looked at and improve team, uh, team functioning through workflow mapping and systems planning. This is the kind of thing where you're engaging the physician and the team at a broader level about the environment in which they're working. Stuart, what, what does co-location mean? Sure. So um, what Chris talked about is, um, and so she and her, her husband, um, Tom, they actually have three nurses. They each have one and they share one. And the way they work in their office is that is they are the nurses right in the middle of the care. So you know, there's two rooms or three rooms, whatever they have, and the nurse is right there. So you're not walking out of the room trying to find your nurse, right? The person's right there. So it's not like a nursing station down the way. So the co-location is actually changing the office around yeah. so that you are right there with your team, or whoever that constitutes that team. That's co-location. So your current EMR, uh, it's clearly, you know, no. Uh, your, so this, this is the EMR environment that, that you're in and we're in. Um, but to know your medical informatics leadership, uh, the physician experts and champions, the super users in your clinical area, the online research resources that you have. We have um, uh, tips and tricks. We have learning modules and the like. Um, Epic Care has a number of resources. But know how that 
so this is interesting. This is um, EMR and Epic and other other uh, vendors can track your use. Right? Can track how many smart tools you use. You can track how many clicks you take. It sounds kind of Big Brother, but um, but the notion would be, can I use that to my benefit, right? As opposed to having it be a penalty. So if I understood better how I used or didn't use EMR, could I actually learn some tools that would help me be more efficient, right? This is, we're, we're not doing this yet, but I know that it, it's, a, it's a possibility. And could that actually be helpful, right? Um, and I think, uh, I think the answer is yes, comma, carefully, right? Um, in the larger practice organization, communication, trust, transparency, and aligned values are absolutely critical. We saw that from the original memo data. Um, we do use clinical dashboards for productivity and quality. Um, and, um, and then involving physicians in the practice, right? Involving the team in the practice to look at the workflow and the clinical support requirements, no matter what, who's, on, who's on your team. Um, the other piece of this for practice organization is, and for physician engagement is assessing the workplace for stress, satisfaction, and burnout. And Dr. Linzer and colleagues have a number of tools, and I one in the whole back slides, about how to look at stress, burnout, satisfaction within an organization. Um, and being willing to look at that uh, and to ask, to ask the question, both as a single point, but also as a, over time, um, are we getting better and decreasing stress and increasing satisfaction? In the academic space, which is also where we are, I'm, I'm from an academic medical center, you're an academic medical center, we often teach, and some of our scholarship occurs in this clinical space. So how do we balance the clinical demands with the expectations for teaching, research, and scholarship? It's a question I don't have the answer I'm absolutely at make it count twice about being delivered about the choices we make for the scholarship that we do, supporting that scholarship, um, uh, and then also having a, a place to, uh, to uh, a place to to, um, to to disseminate that scholarship. But my pitch um, is that QI and process improvement um, as scholarship are really important. They would meet the metrics of of, of There are ways to meet the metrics of scholarship through this work, and it's a great place for clinical educators to feel engaged and productive. Um, the ACP has been great, absolutely excellent um, on uh, practice support, as have other national, national societies, um, PEDS and family as well as others. Um, the ACP has great practice resources, and an office in Washington that's just dedicated to informatics. Um, state chapters are national organizations, um, absolutely, including ACP here, uh, state medical societies, and then the AMA, clearly with the RAND study, um, is very, very interested in um, advocacy and support at a national level. So the journey toward balance, I put this deliberately because it's a journey, and I believe that balance is the issue. I think um, there's not sort of a static, okay, I'm here. It's, it's always going to be more. We're in spring 10. We're, gonna, we, we're, we're leapfrogging over 12 or going right to 14. So there's always new things that are going to be going on. So it's really sort of on balance, off balance. And so that's, that's the energy, I think, is to keep on balance. Um, but we reviewed the, uh, some of the notions about the practice pressures and pace um, and how to, how to um, uh, be mindful of, of the balance. Uh, and, and then um, the visions that of our discussion and, and our actions are to address and mitigate some of that stress. So we have time for questions. Good. So um, uh, today we've talked about the memo study uh, and electronic medical records and physician stress. We've talked about clinical, clinical and organizational levels and some of the specific actions at those levels, including joint practice. And some approaches can help mitigate those, those practice challenges. Um, 
with the notion that uh, at the bottom here, the, the continued focus um, on these areas is needed with the evolution of clinical care that we talked about, the processes of care, payment models that we're entering into, and practice organization at all levels from the clinic up to the institution. Thank you very much, and I'll take your questions. insightful uh, journey through the EMR and our challenges with it. Um, a lot of questions, I'm sure. I mean, it's sort of on both what's the So Stu, thanks for that presentation. And I may be dating myself, but I wonder if the EMR has contributed to isolationism for physicians. So, when we have now availability to look at images, uh, part, part of, of the daily work in the hospital used to be finishing rounds, go get a cup of coffee, go down to the x-ray suite, and review films the radiologist. For me, that, that doesn't happen anymore. And so you miss those relationships with the radiologist. They can teach us things. And then when you get to know a radiologist, you pick up the phone and call. Or you call a colleague. And so I wonder if, if the EMR has contributed to the fact that we as physicians don't spend enough face-to-face -face time with each other, which, which gives meaning in, in our work. Any observations about that? I think, I, yes, I think you're right, that, that we're, we can be more isolated. Um, as I listened to your question, I thought <laughs> that's interesting. So um, there's a notion, too, of, um, of this e-consult, and in terms of me not being able to find you during the day. So I thought you're absolutely right. So, so I can remember my residency, there was the rotator of, uh, in Rochester. We would always go down to the, the x-ray rotator, and we knew the radiologists. They knew us. We asked better clinical questions. We learned from them. And there was a collegial relationship that was absolutely established that we don't have now. Um, uh, so that's very true. I, um, I'm wondering, though, and, and don't have the answer here. So there's um, UCSF has two ways they do e-consult. So you can actually, um, if I wanted to consult you as a subspecialist, and I had a consult question. I put that question in. I get 0.5 RVU in this process for asking the question, and you get 0.5 RVU for sending me back an answer as an informal way to do that. So am I actually able to, to in some electronic way, get to more of my colleagues that I don't see in the office or pick up the phone because I can do electronic, that kind of, that kind of uh, a notion? It's just one idea. I think you're right. I, in, Practice can be quite, um, you know, you, you can feel quite um, <coughs> solo in practice, right? You're, you're, you're co-located with your nurse, and you're doing room one or room two, and room one or room two, and you see the patient, but you don't see colleagues, right? So I, I, think you're, I think you're right that we lose some of that, and then I wonder what part of that is now different because I can e-communicate, and that's a good area for your study. So how do you uh, teach medical students the joy of practice in this changing, challenging environment? Um, <laughs> thank you for that question. <laughs> um, I don't, here's my answer. I'm not, this is the one only one I have. I think we need to be together in the office and engage them. We have to have the t some of the time to teach. We have to be able to show them, to partner with them, much like doctor-patient-computer relationship, to bring our students and residents into that space. Um, 
So I think part of it is that we have to be able to, as leaders and physicians, to design that space because I think our, our learners are watching us a lot about how we are as our role, as role modeling. Um, having said that, sometimes I would ask um, my younger um, colleagues, like, how do you do this? Like, can you give me some answers? Because um, I can tell you that sometimes I get great wisdom from um, people who are more tech savvy than me. Um, and I, and I, I, I'm grateful for that. So I would actually maybe ask the, our third and fourth year students um, and our residents, well, what works for you guys? Um, and uh, engage them in the process as well. I was just going to say that uh, Dartmouth is part of a double AMC CMMI grant uh, that was recently uh, awarded to replicate UCSF's uh, e-console. Oh, cool. Sorry. So I am, am hopeful that that will help this called the medical neighborhood relationships. Uh, I think the biggest hit to that came with coming out of doing patient rotations being exclusively annulus, we lose the interaction with colleagues. So uh, getting that back and that care coordination through consults and through uh, perhaps increased conference. Right, so so it's fantastic. You guys are going to the e-consult um, project here. I, I, I do see that. When I, I go see my patients in the hospital, sort of medically, socially, um, not as a formal uh, evaluation uh, or, or seeing them. And I see more patient, more colleagues on my walk up to the floor and my walk back than I might in the, you know, in the, in the clinic in a day. Um, and so there, there is something that is really challenged about sort of the medical social environment that we're in and seeing each other as colleagues and being able to, to, to reach out to each other when you don't know someone as well. It can be hard. And I totally appreciate that. You just asked you, Stuart, even as far back as the memo study, I think I have this right, about 50% of physicians were really stressed and 50% weren't by the EMR. And I'm struck by that. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a sense here that some people sail for this and are really enabled by right. to practice care. And others are challenged. <clears throat> So, even in my practice, absolutely, there are people who know how to make smart phrases and know to do smart text, and like this is easy. Right? Some people, it's really hard. I also would say that um, um, that the time on task is really important. So, for confidence and to gain confidence, you have to do time on task, and so for. For you um, in the audience, for me in my division, for people who are in clinical work 40 to 50% of the time, it's different than if you're in, in practice um, 80, 90% of the time. So the time on task, one of the frustrations is that people don't have enough time on task to learn and make that part of what they do. Um, uh, no answers, but here's my observation. My observation is we need to figure out where that wisdom is and share it. Because there's a lot of people who know how to do certain things. But I also noticed that, okay, you're an epic, right? So are you are you a dictator? Are you problemless oriented? Do you always use the overview note? Do you never use the overview note? How do you use the record? And I think there's a lot of uh, different ways that we've used the electronic medical record. And so is there some way to say, well, geez, can we have three or four ways that we do this? Um, so I think there's some notion. There's a lot of heterogeneity and skill. Um, but I also, I noticed that, I noticed that, um, and I'm going to say is what does how it happens when your groove becomes a rut? 
What happens when you're cruising along and you think you're doing great in the record and you realize after about a year that you can't find some of the data that you'd hoped you'd find? Oh, don't, I really wish I'd practiced in a different way a year ago. Well, it's, that's gone, right? So how do we optimize? How do we keep learning? And I think some of the challenges are also how do we keep learning for a heterogeneously skilled population? Um, we've done some things we've, in addition to, um, to um, uh, pushing out O2 updates and so forth, we tried to do this one thing where we have looked at patient care, how we document, in, um, but to do it in a way uh, that, that, that meets the goal. So for diabetes, what we did is we, we, had, we, got, we got lunch, we got a computer lab that allowed for lunch, because most computers don't allow sodas around the keyboard. <clears throat> um, and we said, OK, let's take diabetes. right? So what we did is we, um, we said, let's start from diabetes. Let's start from the best practice alert to the chief complaint to the uh, health maintenance tab. We use our health maintenance tab as a disease maintenance tab, too. Just saying, we had to do it that way. Um, to the problem list, to uh, the goals. And so we, we took it straight the way down. So what we said was, OK, we know that for adult learners, you need to be on task and to do a task toward a goal. That's what adult learners, that's one of the ways that we, we, we're wired. So instead of saying, well, we're going to talk about how to do a smart phrase today and do that out of context, the idea was to optimize in context. So with food, it's always good. Uh, with a computer lab, always good. Live in your patient or in a test environment. And you, we went through about a patient, as opposed to saying we're going to talk about a, a skill or skill today. There's other times where we'll optimize based on skill, right? Here's how to take a, someone's library and download what you want out of it. We've done that too. So I think the other, the other place to go for scholarship would be what works for having people maintain their skill set or learn more skills. Um, so while the car is moving, right? Um, and how do you do that um, in a way that makes sense? Sir? Thanks, thanks for these tips and tricks, and thank you for your lectures. Uh, question, you know, for many of us who started practice before there was such a thing as a personal computer, we looked at computerized medicine as offering automated services to do away with scud work. This was a, a world where, you know, oh, the computer's going to offer all these ways to have more satisfaction than we do. And in my practice, when I see something happens automatically, wow, that's a great digi This thing is all, almost perfect, um, in addition to its other benefits. So I guess the question is, when we're doing things like ordering cerumen disinfection, and we have to order underneath that the reason for the diagnosis being cerumen impaction, um, we have, we're, are we not asking enough of groups like Epic to make the workflow built into the system? So we're not having to work to do what it does, but it's actually doing what we need to do in an automated fashion. And, and I think, so, so yeah, yeah. respond to, this is such a large organization, so many different organizations are using it. Why are we not seeing this rolled out more rapidly? That's a great question. So, Scott, um, for our subcortical use of time, um, <laughs> what Scott means, I love it. Um, uh, I've asked my informatician. So, an informatician is a, a, a noun I didn't really know before I started this. An informatician is someone who really specializes in medical informatics and um, anything from sort of the software piece all the way through implementation. I've, I've not been to Epic um, or to any of the major vendors, right? So I don't know how they'd respond to that. 
the informatician in them would say, this is what I've been told, well, it works. Right? I mean, the linkages work. The software works. It's not an informatics problem. It's an implementation problem. So I don't know where the where that all lies in terms of what Epic does. I know that um, they do listen, I think, at some point, because the Spring 12 and the Spring 40, the different versions have different things, have different um, optimization, different software in them. I also know that we're, also, we're always mindful of when, we, uh, when our folks optimize of is this going to be carried forward in 14? So how much tinkering do we do in the software at an institution level to make it right, right? Um, uh, and to respond to the clinical flow as opposed to responding to the software flow. Um, so I know I don't have an, an answer. I absolutely hear your question. Um, and I know that our, that our, our folks in the EMR world um, have heard that from us. And I also know that they're, they're asking um, Epic as well, but I don't, I don't have more insight than that. Thank you, Stuart, very much. So, so good.